Welcome, friends. You're listening to the to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly podcast slash radio show of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network, where, and if you're not, you're listening to our podcast for free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe at the Catholic Association org slash podcasts or on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Today, I'm Dr. Gracie Christie. I didn't introduce myself and I'm in my studio closet in Miami and I'm joined uh, from the studio in DC by my colleague, the legal legal from the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti Bayer. Hello, Andrea. Hey, Gracie. It's great to be here again. And you're gonna make you're gonna tease me and tell me that you can see the capital. I actually right? can, can you see, see the, the capital? capital. It's a beautiful day here in Washington. It's like <laughs> a thousand degrees, and the humidity so makes the, your hair wonderful. So the back joke, the back joke behind that is our first three podcast episodes. I, all I could talk about was how I could see the capital. We it's really it's really awe inspiring. So I wouldn't blame you for that. Okay, well, thank you. So stop teasing me about it, okay? Okay. All right. Good. So we move on. On to and, more teasing um, of Gracie. Yes, enough teasing of Gracie, who just cut her finger taking the dishes out of the dishwasher. So I've had enough trauma today, okay? Anyway. You know, it's great. We were we were talking earlier about the, the wonderful life of being a mother and juggling uh, all the obligations of parenting, domestic work, and professional work. And, and still being witty conversationalists in the closet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not everybody can do this. I'm really not sure you should say that you're in the closet, but uh, in your studio <laughs> in Miami. But you know, it's a really amazing experience. And one of the things um, that we're going to be talking about today is uh, the group that we work with and one of our wonderful colleagues. And I've got to say, after being a stay-at-home mom for many years and just returning back to the world of work two years ago, I am so amazed and thankful and every day I kind of wake up and think I get to do this again I get to work with these wonderful people and so maybe Gracie, well we do have tell us a little bit about a spectacular, what you got in store uh, we do have we do have spectacular colleagues that we work with and uh, we're very fortunate that we have these wonderful people in our lives who wouldn't be there if we were just taking dishes out of the dishwasher of course so it's all good dishes are good um, and our friends are, are, are much better than dishes so today, we're waiting right now, actually, because Ashley is going to be joining us in the studio. She'll be with Andrea, and she's she's about to arrive, but we thought we'd go through um, her bio and uh, behind her back because we don't want her mm -hmm. to feel embarrassed when we're singing her praises. So Ashley McGuire is the author of a book called Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. She's a senior fellow with the Catholic Association, which is our our association that we all work for. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Time, USA Today, and many others. She publishes all the time. She's also appeared on most major television and radio outlets. She's uh, testified before the United Nations. Uh, also, she speaks in academic settings. She comments on religious freedom. She talks a lot about feminism and politics. And um, she's also an editor of the Institute for Family Studies blog, Let's see what else. A 2011 recipient of the Phillips Foundation Robert Novak Journalism Fellowship and a recipient of the Susan B. Anthony List Young Pro-Life Leader Award. And she happens to live in D.C. with her husband and three very little children. She's You can see that she's a very busy woman. She gets a lot done. 
And, um, and she did write this book, which is amazing, called, I just said it, it's called The Dri- Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. You know, it's amazing, Gracie, um, just hearing all of Ashley's accomplishments at her age and with all of the responsibilities that she's taken on in, for her family as well. It's a great reminder for me that it, even though I'm working with people in our generation that are fantastic, Ashley's another example of what's yet to come. Uh, women are doing wonderful things, uh, especially Catholic women in the U.S., and Ashley's a great example. So I'm really looking forward so, to talking to her about what she's accomplished in this book. You know, with this book, she tackled a very difficult subject that it's that it's on it's on all our minds. It's the the new gender ideology, and she she talks about it in her book from a very from a very interesting perspective, which is the way that it. Um, the way that it abolishes these differences, the natural sex differences between men and women and how that affects women. I mean, it's not just about who's in the in the bathroom with your child at school, <laughs> which that's a very important thing. But these uh, this gender ideology really attacks, uh, it strikes at the root of the way that uh, women exist in society, uh, the, the safe spaces that, that, that exist for women, the way we've, we've um, organized society to give women certain places where they can they can um um you know live more uh, more equitably right so feminism we go back to the term of you know to the same theories of feminism so let's take a short break and when we come back we'll be talking to ashley as she joins us in studio So Ashley's joined us in the studio. Hello, Ashley. We've been talking behind you about you behind your back. I think your ears must have been burning. Oh, I hope you were. I hope you were nice. <laughs> we were going on and on about all your accomplishments. I think and the we one, didn't. The I one, think we didn't hmm? say enough praise, honestly. Yeah, you think? Yeah. We didn't say how pretty she is. <laughs> <laughs> Super beautiful. Yes. Okay. So we, um, what we really want to talk to you about today, though, Ashley. Although we could talk to you about all sorts of things, so we want to talk to you about your book, and your book is called Sex Scandal. And it came out in 2017. You just told us a little while ago that I didn't know this. It came out on Valentine's Day in 2017, which I think is very interesting. Why did you want the book to come out or was that a coincidence on Valentine's Day? Well, that was my publishers. They chose that date. But I think they were being purposeful because they know that uh, if there's any day of the year that best sort of um, brings to the forefront the differences between men and women and how those differences come together in sort of a beautiful way, it's mm-hmm. Valentine's Day. But for me, it was actually also a little bit providential because the first piece that I um, ever wrote for my college newspaper, which started me on my path of writing, uh, was also about Valentine's Day. It was about Tufts, which is where I went in Boston, and their annual sex fair. Hmm. And um, I walked... Was that on Valentine's Day? It was on Valentine's Day. Uh-huh. And... Um, I walked into the uh, campus center and I was just like getting a cup of coffee and basically stumbled across this thing. Um, and it was co-sponsored by the Women's Center. And, you know, I'll spare you the gory details because they're really R-rated. But it was a really sort of upsetting um, thing to encounter. And I write about it in the book, actually, um, in the chapter about what's happening on college campuses and how um, degrading so much of all of this is for women. My 
I, I've been rereading your book this week. I, I reread it because I, I read it when it came out. I enjoyed it very much. But I was reading about, you, you mentioned your time at Tufts several times. And I kept wondering when I was reading about it, I was like, was, did I go to a much saner school? Or is it that, uh, well, I graduated from college in 1991. So I'm, I'm, I think I'm like 20 years older than you, Ashley. But I don't know, is, do you think that things in general are as horrible as you talk about at Tufts? I really do. And I think they've gotten worse. Um, you know, I think Tufts was maybe a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of horribleness. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, the statistics are pretty terrifying. Uh, you know, I think I talk about how something like 80 percent of sexual assaults in colleges happen in the dorms. Um, and colleges, instead of sort of working to try to uh, make their environment safer for women, um, which starts with separating the sexes, a lot of them mm -hmm. are sort of rushing full speed ahead to uh, integrate them as much as yeah. possible. And I talk about in the book how there's this sort of uh, growing push for um, uh, sex, uh, let, letting men and women share dorm rooms. Well, can, can I say, uh, I'm sorry, Andrea, I know you want to say something, but my 19-year-old my is going back as a sophomore to University of Pennsylvania, and he just got his dorm assignment two weeks ago, and he's been assigned a two-bedroom um, double, like two bedrooms sharing a bathroom and a little with a girl. That's, so he, he oh. immediately wrote back and said, put me back in the lottery, I want a guy. But I, yeah, so anyway, I'm agreeing with you. Yes, I'm, I'm watching it happen to my own child. But what were you going to say, Andrea? No, I was, I was going to say, Gracie, your instincts to kind of go back in time and think about when we were in college and then look forward and look at where our kids, whether they're in college or heading to college soon, is a really uh, important insight and something that a lot of us are kind of seeing. You know, wow, things weren't like that in my day. And oh, my gosh, what are things going to be like for my kids? Um, I wanted to, when I was reading the book, Ashley, when, it, when I first got it, and, and again, uh, in preparation, I was remembering that I didn't understand terminology, and I still really don't. Um, but your book is very helpful to explain a little bit about the terminology around sex and gender as we understand, as it's being discussed, as far as yeah, like, because describing that's very a human confusing. person. And Everyone's very confused about what now what what's sex what's gender so tell us Ashley explain yeah. to us explain to us well it's very true <laughs> and you know I think it was George Orwell who said you control language you control the debate and so this um, getting the, the language right is essential to helping us win this debate um, and I was surprised my own mother who has a law degree and practiced law um, when she heard I was writing this book and we were talking about the terminology, she was like, oh, you know, gender is your biological, whether you're male or female. Um, sex is, you know, f you know, sort of the social components of things. And I was like, no, it's actually the opposite. And I was surprised mm -hmm. that even she didn't know that. Um, but no, sex, um, as I, I did probably, I stopped keeping track after the 75th radio interview. So I got asked this question a lot, a lot of times with very little time to answer the question. I finally hone down the definition to this sex means something gender means nothing um oh, sex perfect. means sex means whether you are a male or a female and uh -huh. there's really two things that go into that your genitalia and your chromosomes full stop mm -hmm. the end any medical textbook will spell this out you know this gracie you went to medical school um there's no d dispute over the definition the medical definition of sex 
Um, and no scientific and no scientific right. quibble on this. Right. right. Um, gender is who knows. I mean, there's uh, sort of gender theorists can't even agree amongst themselves what it means. Is it fluid? Is it not? Um, is it a spectrum? Is it not? Is it polar? Is it not? Um, you know, Facebook tried putting out like 50 genders and they got hammered because mm-hmm. it wasn't enough. And they eventually had to just abandon the whole experiment and say, um, okay, just here's a blank line. Um, you wrote, I think you wrote in your book, I don't know if it was a quote. I can't remember if it was a quote. You said, uh, if there are 7 billion people in the planet, then right. there are 7 billion genders. Is right. that, was that yeah. a quote from you or from someone No, that else? was from a, a sort of a social theorist who is on the extreme end of, you know, gender is pretty much a meaningless construct. Um, but it's very relevant because the whole idea, well, first of all, it's essential to what's hap- to understanding what's happening right now. Um, which is mm-hmm. there is a concerted legal push to replace the word sex in the law with gender. And um, that is what sort of the this started with the Obama administration when they sent out a letter to colleges um, saying that, you know, if you discriminate on the basis of gender, you can be stripped of your funding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, it, it started back sort of a second wave feminists who started to try to make the argument that our maleness and femaleness are basically socialized constructs. And certainly there's an aspect to each culture um, where maleness and femaleness differs. Um, But there are some, you know, 95% of it is scientific um, and is sort of... And Ashley... The feminists, the reason they were trying to do that is because they were fighting against the stereotypes that kept women from, for instance, um, I don't know, being a doctor, right? No, or being sure. a lawyer. Sure. So there were stereotypes and they were like, no, this, um, whether you're a male or female is just something that's imposed upon you. And by those stereotypes society. are still there today. You know, my daughter, I took her to Target yesterday to buy a birthday present and she wanted to buy Barbies. And I was like, sorry, we're not buying Barbies. <laughs> because. <laughs> I don't like the stereotype portrayed in a Barbie. Um, But that doesn't mean that you completely throw the baby out with the bathwater and say there's no such thing as male or female in this just because you don't like the way the female body is portrayed in a Barbie doll um, to a little girl. Mm -hmm. Ashley, you touch upon something about the importance of kind of equal opportunities when properly understood and equal treatment, um, but recognizing the differences between men and women. And and one of the things I most enjoyed about your book was your appreciation of the uniqueness of women and the special qualities that we have. And there's this great line just in the very introduction where you say that sex should be a source of potential and the starting point for true equality. And I think that that's going back to this, the the starting place, all of this should be to recognize our potential, but not to confuse it and also put women in, in an inferior position, which it seems like the push for gender replacing sex is a dangerous thing for women. Because, Andrea, I think when, 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 I think what you're trying to get at, and, and that I also read that line in it and it caught my attention just last night I read it, but that when we erase the sex difference, we, we talk about erasing the sex differences to make people equal, the men and women equal. But I think what we're doing is we're making women um, to be more like men and to abandon all the things that make us distinctively feminine that, and that bring us joy and, and where, where we are, are naturally ourselves. 
Absolutely. And there, you know, I think um, we're so stuck in this mindset of sort of uh, the litmus test is male. So, you know, Mm -hmm. physical, like that's the standard, physical strength, economic, you know, financial success, these things that we associate with men, um, sexual, sexual freedom. And even, you know, this whole debate about why aren't women more doctors and so many women are nurses and, and you know, so women gravitate towards these professions like teaching and nursing. But that's only a problem if your underlying assumption is that there's something inherently less of a contribution mm-hmm. or less equal to those sorts of qualities or the prof- the, the qualities that, that characterize those professions. And it's... Uh, to me, what I think we need to do is liberate ourselves from this idea that um, we need that, just as as you said, that um, we need to hold women to a male standard because that ultimately undermines women. And you know, I think could have you know, a lot of feminists, left wing feminists, are talking about this as erasure, like the erasure of women, erasing women. Um, Speaking about um, giving women space space to to show their abilities and their potential. One of the things that happened most recently, which I thought was awesome, was um, the U.S. women's soccer uh, team winning the World Cup and how that really brought a lot of Americans together, even people who aren't big soccer I fans or women's soccer fans. I think fans. those women wrecked it. Those well, women wrecked it. <laughs> before we get to that, what I do want to <laughs> talk about, though, is is the opportunities that were opened up for women in Title IX, and and that really gave women a space to develop their athletic potential. You know, that's a that's a big topic, and we really want to get into that with Ashley, but I think we have to take our very short commercial break, okay? But don't let me forget, we, we're going to come back and talk about that. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is the podcast and radio show of the Catholic Association. I am with my two colleagues today, with Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. She's our legal advisor. And also with Ashley McGuire, who is talking to us about her book, Sex Scandal. And this book came out in 2017, and it's, I've, I feel like every day that goes by, the book is more timely and more necessary because it explains... Um, in, in a way, anybody can understand. And with lots of I, what I like about the book is it has a lot of pop cultural references and a lot of references to things that are actually happening. And it's not, it's not all about philosophy and sort of the big background ideas. It's it's full of um, real time uh, issues that are confronting everybody today as we go out into the world. So before our break, Andrea was just asking a question. Maybe you could you could re re ask it, Andrea, because I think we really need to spend a little time on this issue. Well, there are a lot of areas in, in life in which recognizing the differences between men and women and boys and girls plays out in a, a beautiful way and allows boys to, to really flourish and girls to flourish and men and women to flourish. And one area that I think is great is giving women and girls um, equal opportunities, especially when, as it plays out in, in academics and in sports. And I was wondering... Um, Ashley, we, we had spoken before about kind of how some of the recent trends may undermine the gains that women have realized. 
uh, in opening up those spaces. Yeah, well, I I agree with you that the um, I agree with both of you on the women's soccer. I agree that the women ruined it um, <laughs> with their sort of lack of gratitude for their country. But I will say and their that, potty mouths. Yeah, um, but their triumph was a good example of how um, women's sports has been very empowering to women. And moments like that, um, you know, little girls see that and think, I can do that. And, and, and in general, the opportunities of sports um, that were opened up to women in the past several decades have created a lot of, you know, financial opportunities, scholarships. Um, and so, you know, the the woman who is considered sort of the author of Title IX said that um, what it did for women's sports was, you know, one of the biggest, uh, the biggest gains that Title IX did. And, and the purpose was to create opportunities for women um, where they weren't. So um, not to create sort of a sex-blind culture, but if there was, um, you know, if a, if a college had money, they had to show that they were putting equal resources towards, you know, if they were, had a swim team, towards a men's swim, swim team and a girls' swim team. And what's happening now, and I was shocked when I did the research for my book, I, I felt like I had to kind of read and reread it because I couldn't believe this was happening, was that men were taking advantage of Title IX and saying, um, you, you actually can't discriminate um, on the basis of sex under the law. And by that, they meant actually make a distinction between male and female. Therefore, I get to compete on your team. And these men, these boys, were competing against girls in their own sports, breaking their records, taking their scholarships, taking their titles. And, and it's, it's happening. I feel like every day now I read a different story about this happening. I just read today in the Wall Street Journal um, a runner speaking out. She said she was one of the only ones who was willing to speak out because the other girls are so afraid of retaliation, which Title IX is also supposed to protect them against. Mm. Um, and so it's really, it, you know, I was a track runner in high school, and that was a great outlet for me. It, was, it wasn't something that turned into a professional career, but it was a great way uh, for me to develop leadership skills, for me to sort of better myself. You know, and, and sports, for many, for many people who come from uh, underprivileged backgrounds, Absolutely. this is the way that they it's get to ticket. college. It's their ticket. This is how you get to college. And Otherwise, so, you're not going to get to college possibly because there's just no way. I mean, unless you want to take on that huge debt that maybe somebody will pay off. Right. Um, it, so it's just sort of incredible to see Title IX, which was, which was designed to create and expand opportunities for women, now being twisted in such a way that if women protest against their rightful opportunities being taken from them by men, they are the discriminators. And that, again, goes back to the sort of the sex and the gender distinction um, where as soon as you replace sex with gender, suddenly women find the legal floor gets ripped out from underneath them. Erasure. Erasure, mm -hmm. as you were saying. What and, and what, when these men, these boys go and they compete on the girls' team, do all of them, do you think most of them or all of them, I've, I've always wondered about this, and you've done a lot of research on this, do you think that these males really believe that they're women or really feel that they're women trapped in a man's body? Or do you think many of them or some of them are taking advantage of a situation so they can dominate the field? I mean, the, what my research was almost entirely on just men who self-identify as men, boys who self-identify as boys. There was a boy who wanted to swim during the winter season. There was no boys' swim offered during the winter season, so he swam on the girls' team. And he broke the girls' state records with a time that wouldn't have even qualified him for the men's. No. Yeah. Ashley, one of the things that I was interested in is your thoughts 
um, since your book was published, the Me Too movement kind of roared its its head. And in many ways, it had a lot of good things, right? Re- uh, re- identifying horrible people for the abuse that they inflicted on many women. But it also um, brought a lot of confusion to to the conversation about sex differences and particular vulnerability that women have um, when confronted with men in kind of highly charged sexual environments. And since the book came out, what additional thoughts do you have um, in light of Me Too as, as kind of how this came about and, and what blurring sex differences did to make women more and more vulnerable to these kinds of horrific abuse? Well, you know, in my book, I, I write about Harvey Weinstein, and at the time, he, I, I just wrote about him as this unnamed Hollywood bigwig producer huh. um, that apparently everybody knew about, but it was sort of unnamed. So when the story broke, I was like, why is this news? I thought everybody knew this. And I was like, oh, right, they didn't know who, or his name wasn't out there. Um, so it's, you know, uh, I think Me Too has pushed the conversation forward in terms of, you know, is this a sort of reckoning for the sexual revolution? But I've, I've been a little disappointed, to be honest, at how sort of little good has come out of that. You know, I'll give an example. I just saw the governor of, of I can't remember which state it is, um, they're writing all these negative stories about him because he doesn't want to have a meeting alone with a female reporter in a room, and it you know brought back up the Mike Pence thing, and you know y- you don't have to subscribe to the Mike Pence philosophy to at least recognize that um, you know our cu- we live in a culture that's very extreme on this, and he's trying to do something that acknowledges the fact that um, men and women who are not married should not be alone in private settings. And you you look at the Harvey Weinstein stuff and these women were going into his hotel room at 12:1 in the morning um and this is the sort of uh the sort of stuff that women are told that they should be doing that their careers will suffer mm-hmm. if they don't do. But then somebody like Mike Pence um goes around and tries to sort of respect the boundaries of women and he gets hammered for it too. So But actually the, the erasing of sex differences, how does that play into the Me Too movement? What's what's the connection there? How do they overlap? Well, the connection is that, you know, it'd be one thing for two men to be meeting alone, you know, to talk, quote unquote, business at 1030 at night over drinks in a hotel room. And the idea, I think, that got us into the Harvey Weinstein Me Too thing is that it's no different for men, you know, women yeah, or men. Women should go too. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. no different, except it is different because women can be raped, and it's the same thing yeah. that happens on college campuses. Why does it matter if men and women are sleeping under the same dorms and, and you know, under the same roof and in the same rooms and using the same bathrooms? It doesn't matter if they're no different, if we're just, you know, our bodies look different, but it does matter if we take into account the fact that women are uniquely vulnerable, and women don't like that because it's, I don't know, they think it's paternalistic. It's just reality. Um, and so we, we build a society that's erasing sex differences, and that results in women being exposed to Ma- situations mass where they can assault. be pressured, mm-hmm. right? They can be pressured Absolutely. and pushed into sexual relationships that they don't want. And that creates the Me Too movement. But then you see the Me Too movement, and what you're seeing is women saying, no, I want to be out there naked and sexual and have men respect me. So it's, 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 it's all very confusing. And I don't see that it goes anywhere positive. There's a a great line in your book, 
Ashley saying that the sexual revolution billed as progress for women is actually just a Ponzi scheme for the patriarchy. Um, and it's, I thought that was classic. And, and it's a really interesting thing to think when, when we don't recognize our uniqueness as women and we throw ourselves out into you know, the, the den of wolves, we're likely to get devoured. Right. And, you know, liberal feminists would respond and say, well, men need to behave themselves. Well, of course. But we also, you know, you can't build your society based on the assumed perfect behavior of all the humans. You need to build your society based on the fallen nature of humans and do what needs to be done to protect the most vulnerable. And women are vulnerable in a way that men are not. And what's so terrifying to me about the denial of sex differences is that it's tearing down all the barriers that are in place to protect women um, and their vulnerabilities, whether it's their privacy in dorms or bathrooms um, or their... And doesn't it also, when we erase those sex differences, aren't we also asking men to, to act like women? I mean, aren't we saying, man, you know, you are easily titillated. You're easily overpowered by your sexual desires. You're easily you easily become a bully to get what you want. Right. Those are those are male. Sorry, Mike. Mike, the producer is listening. <laughs> you're, a, you're a male um, and you have these proclivities. We women don't have them in general. Um, so we're also saying to men, no, you're going to behave like a lamb, even though you're sort of like a wolf and, and you need to be in your own space. I mean, well, that's a little strong, maybe. You think I'm being too strong, Andrea? I always think you're being too strong, but that's what I really most admire about you. But one of the the interesting kind of when things go crazy, crazy is, um, and Ashley, you point this out in your book, kind of now prostitution and the calls to make prostitution uh, decriminalize oh, it, and think that that's a a good oh. for women. That it's it's a good thing for us to be able to sell ourselves to somebody who really doesn't care for us. I find that I find that one of the creepiest things in in modern life right now is is the push to talk about prostitution as sex work. That is so disgusting. Right. And it's again, it's sort of trying to like make I, I think it goes back to the sort of holding women to the male standard like, oh, um, let's make this work um, when it's actually like the systematic objectification for profit of the female body. It's interesting to see how, you know, some of these things are dividing feminists. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting. Yeah. That's well, mm-hmm. that's a big one. Um, and e- even, you know, Me Too, I think, has has divided feminists in many ways. Um, but I think, you know, it shows that there's this is sort of an interesting moment in time right now to sort of rethink um, a way for, you know, I don't, I don't think I wrote about this in the book, um, and I loved when we interviewed Mona Charon, but I love thinking about the different waves of feminism, and I think it's important to remember that they have been waves, and that you know what each wave did was sort of take the good from the last wave and try to move forward. And so you know, I think um, a lot of what I, I try to do in the book is think about you know, where are we now, and, and what do we need to do to move to move the cause of of women's equality forward and and in the book i argue that the starting point has to be not just recognizing but celebrating that women are different from men there's a i really am looking forward to riding the wave of authentic feminism as um saint john paul the second kind of brought that 
that term out there to really think about women are awesome. We have particular unique traits and, and abilities that men don't have. We're complementary to men. And now we're in this world where our contributions, fortunately, are legally um, recognized and, and encouraged and protected. But at the same time, um, our uniqueness needs to be preserved. So I would love, what would it be, like the fifth wave? Are we in the fifth already? I think this would the be fourth? the fourth. The fourth. You know, when I moved to, Catholic when I moved to this country, when I moved to this country from Latin America, I was very shocked at the way that men, that women weren't protected, that girls were not protected. And for me, it was absolutely bizarre that, you know, girls weren't kept in cotton wool the way we were in Latin America. <laughs> and, and it, doesn't make sense to me. I've, women need more protection and more care and, and, and a society that, that treats women with, with tremendous respect and, and respects that they have a vulnerability that men don't have is a better society. Now, of course, where I came from in Latin America, there were also a lot of stereotypes that kept women, you know, from doing things like playing soccer. And I mean, when we had um, in, in school, when we had uh, phys ed or, or recreation time, we, the girls sewed and the boys played soccer. So that's how we, you know, we were, we were, you know, separated like that. Um, so it's not that I believe girls shouldn't play soccer, but, you know, we do need to have a society that, that protects women more than it does now. So I was wondering, Ashley, you mentioned before um, some of the work that was done during the prior administration, the Dear Colleague letters, and the current administration has pulled those. Um, Shouldn't that be enough? Can't we just go back to like all being normal and not worrying about this, or, or Ashley, what's really on the you, front? Maybe Ashley can explain to our listeners about that, about the what the dear colleague letters are, just because it might not be um, yeah, so clear. The big one related to education, and um, they they sent out a letter saying um, if you don't, uh, you know, enforce you know anti discrimination on the basis of gender, we'll take away your funding. But what that meant is, you know, um, basically it was very legally complicated, but it was basically trying to flip sex and gender. Um, but no, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't think the work is done at all. In fact, I think some of the most concerning stuff is happening in schools now. Um, and I know the last podcast episode was about um, getting kids out of schools, and we took our daughter out of public school out of concern for what is being taught related to um, gender in the public schools. I looked at some of the curriculums that are um, being taught in various public schools across the country, and they start this stuff at like kindergarten. Um, and so I think there's still a very sort of entrenched uh, and, and growing even more entrenched um, belief in America, especially among the ideological elite who shape culture, who are in you know the institutions that are the most influential that um, the sexes are the same and that gender is what we should be focusing on, gender identity. And actually, recently the Vatican released a document denouncing gender theory or asking Catholics um, to look at it carefully and, and understand exactly where it was taking us. Do you, do you, think, um, you think this is a document that could help American Catholics well, somehow when it filters down to them through the parish, through the priest? Absolutely. I, I think American Catholics really need to educate themselves on this um, and, you know, it was Pope Francis, I quote him in the book as saying that gender ideology is a war on the family. And, mm -hmm. it, you know, those are sort of fighting words, but they're true because, you know, if 
why form a family if men and women are the same? It really, this, this whole debate gets at the heart of some of the most like important and essential aspects of civil society, starting with the family. Because you know we live in a society that's praising the fact that four out of 10 households are run by single moms. This only makes sense if women don't meet, need men because there's no complementarity and children don't need a mother and a father. Mm -hmm. I was right. um, sex differences. I think mm -hmm. Grace, you ahead, touch yeah. upon a really important point, and that's um, the importance to educate ourselves. And I, I really think that the the document out of the Vatican, especially because it was directed to Catholic educators, um, not just you know not a, a letter to the bishops. It's really kind of now we got to get our boots on the ground. We all need to start understanding more, not just to fight something that's um, confusing, but to really understand truth. Uh, okay, but before before our listeners listen, I mean, read the Vatican document, they have to read Ashley's book because <laughs> it frames... The Vatican document's complicated, but I think Ashley's book really frames the whole thing in, in ways that we can understand and we can see its effect in in uh, so many different branches of social life and, and, the, and how it's affecting so many people. Absolutely. So... So all of our listeners need to go out and get Sex Scandal. And how can they get that book? And find it on Ashley. Amazon. And I oh, think Barnes & Noble still has it. If, if you've got a bookstore, it was in the bookstores. Oh, well, okay. There you have it. So thank you so much, Ashley, for coming and, talk to, coming and talking to us about Sex Scandal, your wonderful book. Thank you. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. This week, Maureen and I have picked out three articles from this week's clip that we thought you might find interesting. First article comes from the Washington Post and it's titled Trump Administration Moves to Enforce Abortion Restriction. Maureen, perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit about what's going on in this important move from the Trump administration in Title X Family Planning Program Grants. Sure. The Washington Post ran a story on August 9th um, talking about the Title X regulations, the new Trump administration rules on Title X clinics. And just a little history on that, the Title X program is a federal family planning program. Uh, but the abortion giant Planned Parenthood has weaseled their way in over the years and gets millions of dollars in taxpayer funding through the Title X program. So the, the Trump administration has said abortion is not an appropriate method of family planning. And if you're providing abortions, you cannot use our family planning money because the difference between um, 
contraception and abortion is kind of like the difference, as Mark Twain used to say, is like the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. So, mm-hmm. so Title X is a family planning program, and the Trump administration has said, if you're a Title X recipient, you cannot be providing abortions. So this is sort of a big Donnybrook over millions of dollars in taxpayer funding. And this news story is basically saying, okay, Title X clinics, you have uh, another week or so to tell us how you're planning on complying with these new rules, and you have another month or so to start implementing these new rules. And all the while in the background, this is being fought out in federal court. So it remains to be seen how it will uh, all play out, but it's a pretty interesting story about all of this back and forth in the Washington Post. Well, and it's great, Maureen, that we're highlighting this. comes a couple of weeks after we were talking about um, Obria, which is kind of a, a natural family planning um, support group, um, getting Title X family planning grants as well, and and really seeing that this program is there to serve women, and it's not there to serve entities like Planned Parenthood and fill their coffers, but really to, to help women be open to life and to, to better understand um, the role of life and, and the importance of children in their own families and space things out according to both their convictions and what's good for them. That's right, and it's, and it's fantastic that this Title X program has been opened up to providers of natural family planning as well. So that's um, super exciting. Well, and our next article kind of continues that same theme of openness to life and development, and it comes from the Catholic Herald, and it's written by Jessica Abel. Um, it was from August 9th, and the title is Archbishop Nauman. Fighting abortion is the most important human rights effort of our time. And this article speaks about uh, a gathering of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, the Pro-Life Leadership Conference um, for diocese, and a really beautiful speech that Archbishop Nauman, the chairman of the pro-life activities for the uh, U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, gave. And he speaks again about um, kind of encouraging all Catholics and encouraging Catholic leaders in the pro-life community and, and within the diocese to really continue to be light and to, to know that their leadership in um, inspiring um, pro-life uh, advocacy and, and all along the way, not only uh, prior, you know, from the moment of conception until natural death is something that the church has a special calling to and that the world has a special need to hear. That's right. I thought this was a very inspiring summary of Archbishop Nauman's keynote address to this annual gathering of parish pro-life leaders from around the country, um, talking about the title of the talk was Life Will Be Victorious. It was very hopeful uh, about how we can better build a culture of life on the par- starting on the parish level. And our last uh, article just comes from the National Catholic Register, and it's written by Joan Dettman, and it's titled Foster to Adopt. Parents share the life-changing stories of the gift of family. We don't have much time to speak about it, but I encourage everyone to look at this really beautiful story about um, pro-life advocacy in our own families. And, And a number of the families that are highlighted 
muscular Lisa Wheeler and her husband Timothy. They've welcomed in so many um, children from foster care and, and adopted a number of the children. And it really shows um, that being pro-life really is a benefit to your own family and, and your family grows through um, welcoming children either in a foster care setting or through adoption. So I'd highly, highly encourage you to read these beautiful stories. I think we need more of these examples of, of light to keep us going in these times of, of great challenge. So thank you, Maureen, for joining us. Um, you can find the links to these articles on the podcast show notes. To subscribe to the podcast and the media clips, go to thecatholicassociation.org. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry and do look up his daily homily on his website, www.catholicpreaching.com. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's good once more to have a chance to enter with you into the conversation with consequences Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Sunday, Jesus emphatically will tell us why he left heaven, became man, lived, preached, suffered, was crucified, rose and ascended, something each of us has to ponder deeply, prayerfully, and frequently. I have come to set the earth on fire, Jesus says, and how I wish it were already blazing. Just like the Holy Spirit was sent down his tongues of fire to ignite the members of the early church with the passion to live and preach the gospel until the ends of the earth, Jesus came down with the same holy ardor, with the same white-hot love, to make us his torchbearers, to set the world ablaze with the light of his truth and the fire of his mercy. The great third-century theologian Origen once commented on Jesus' words about igniting the world with fervent faith and avid love. Jesus was essentially saying, he said, Whoever is near me is near the fire. Just like Jesus, after the resurrection, warmed the hearts of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he wants to enkindle our hearts to such a degree that we will be able to warm others with his burning love. Pope Benedict once said, Faith must become in us a flame of love, a flame that really fires up our being, that becomes the great passion of our life, and so fires up our neighbor too. Why is fire so important? Because one of the greatest dangers that can afflict us in the Christian life is what spiritual authors call lukewarmness. Rather than being fired up for the faith, the lukewarm often draw near to God, his word, his presence in the sacrament, his image in others, but with spiritual asbestos around their hearts. They might say their prayers, but they rush through them without passion. They may come to Mass, but leave their enthusiasm at home. Catholics ought to be more passionate about God speaking to us and feeding us at Mass than the greatest sports fans are for their teams to win the championship. Tepid Christians are somewhat like fair-weather fans. Very few of us, let's face it, are lukewarm on the day of our First Communion, just like very few priests are tepid on the day of their ordination. Something happens to us. We lose the fire we once had. We lose the ardor. We begin to spend more of our time adoring what's playing on our high-def TVs than adoring Jesus. We spend more time reading newspapers, magazines, and social media pages than we do God's Word. Jesus wants to give us the love we had at first. He came into the world to light the earth on fire, and Jesus continues to come each Sunday, in fact, each day, to light us on fire so that we transformed can change the world. When we're ignited, it doesn't mean that there won't on occasion be some suffering. The fire of God's love always burns in the form of a cross. When we begin to get fired up with the love of God, 
some won't be happy. That's why Jesus, right after having told us that he has come to light us and the whole world on fire, says that because of him, families will be divided two against three in various ways. This isn't because Jesus came to bring division. It's because when some members of the family really put him first, others who want to be first simply get jealous. The division ensues not because of the fire, but because of the other's ice-cold, stubborn heart. But the greatest gift we can give to others is the gift of God. And God is not tepid, but on fire out of love for them. When our fire translates into compassion, patience, reverence, encouragement, and forgiveness, over the course of time, we'll see what so many Christians have rejoiced to see before us. That God's fire in us can and will not only set alight our lukewarm family members and friends, but can melt even the most stony of hearts. The greatest way of all God has established to inflame us is mass. Whoever draws near Christ draws near the fire, Origen told us. We draw near to Christ in the Holy Eucharist. St. Ephraim wrote that whenever we receive Jesus in Holy Communion, we ingest fire. That's why I can't wait for Sunday, and I hope you're ignited too for what Jesus wants to do in you. God bless you. Thank you so much, Father Landry, for our weekly treat. Unfortunately, it's time to say goodbye to all our listeners. You've been listening to Conversations with Consequences, which is a service of the Catholic Association. I'm your host, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I was joined today by my dear colleague, Ashley McGuire, and we were really glad to have you. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast of our show wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. Tell all your friends about us and or join us next week on our radio show, 11 a.m. on the Guadalupe Radio Network. Goodbye, friends. Goodbye.